Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Wood. I'm an EM and critical care NP and medic, podcast host, and wilderness enthusiast. Uh, it's great to have you joining us today. We know there are a lot of pat podcasts you could be listening to. There's a lot you could be doing with your time. Uh, we're thrilled that you're spending your time with us today on the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I'm very excited today to have two great guests for the price of one, although they haven't sent me their bill yet, so I'm just assuming it's the price of one. But I'd like to, to bring on board and, and welcome Dr. Liz Yates and Dr. Louis Nguyen from the Department of Surgery at the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. Um, so let's meet our guest. Dr. Yates, can you give us a little bit of background on uh, what you do and, and your work? Absolutely. I'm a general surgery resident at the Brigham, as you mentioned. I finished three of my clinical years so far, which means I still have two to go. Uh, but in between our clinical years, we're allowed to take an academic development sabbatical effectively, which is anywhere from one to three years of time to focus on research. And that can be anything from getting an extra degree to basic science research, or in my case, I've been very fortunate to be able to focus on issues around sustainability in surgery and the impact of climate change on surgical outcomes. And my research mentor in that effort has been Dr. Wynn. So Dr. Wynn, wonderful to have you on today. Um, I love your background, by the way. You can see there's, it looks like a nice tropical picture behind you. Um, we're all from Boston. Right now, it feels like we're in the tropics. It's 90 degrees with about equal humidity. So this is a perfect topic to be talking about. Um, can you give us a little bit can, you know, of a dive into your background and experience? Thank you, Stephen, for having us uh, both on the uh, podcast. Uh, again, my name is Louis Wynn. I'm a practicing vascular surgeon at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, I'm associate professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. I wear a lot of different hats. Um, and in this case, as Liz mentioned, I also have a long track record of mentoring residents and students. Uh, towards academic research projects. Uh, Liz is a little unique because uh, we do a lot of research, but also in an area that I think is not traditionally uh, filled with researchers and, and, and projects, which is the environmental sustainability of the sector. So um, I've had to put uh, some extra brain power into this, uh, but mentorship uh, for Liz has been great. And we've used some of my teachings from academic research and, and um, behavioral health and behavioral economics to, to add a little twist to uh, sustainability projects, which we'll hopefully talk about later this hour. Oh, great, great. Well, I think what I'd like to lead off with is just kind of a, a generalization. Uh, you know, when we think about climate change, we think about sustainability in the environment um, and medicine, a lot of people think about, you know, maybe heat islands um, and that impact. Um, you know, but we don't think about kind of, you know, sustainability. We don't think about, you know, kind of what people consider pollution. Um, we tend to think about those of the, you know, that's the realm of, of heavy industry and transportation. And we don't think about, you know, this as much, I think, in our, in our healthcare setting. You know, it doesn't immediately jump to mind as being a, a, a problem in and around healthcare. So can either of you and, and actually both of you Kind of lead us into what's the connection there? How does healthcare impact the environment, and what's the impact of that environmental change on healthcare and healthcare outcomes? 
It's a really important question um, and one that we deal with pretty frequently in our work. The most recent uh, estimate and kind of best estimate out there is that healthcare has a pretty big what we call carbon footprint, meaning that the daily functions of the healthcare system, be it making pharmaceutical drugs, running a hospital, having patients come to clinic, the footprint or the carbon emissions associated with that total industry actually add up to quite a bit. And the most recent and kind of best estimate out there is that we're approximately 9% of the total emissions in the United States. That's on the higher end of healthcare industries across the world, but we're not surprised because the US healthcare industry as a total of our economy is, as we all know, bigger uh, than other kind of equivalent nations and certainly larger than some of the developing countries. So when we back out and look at it on a global scale, healthcare actually represents almost 5% of total carbon emissions across the world. And it may sound like a small number, but 5% is actually many, many gigatons or millions of tons of carbon in the, in the atmosphere. And so the way that we practice and the way that we deliver care actually does impact climate change. And as we'll talk about a little bit more this hour, uh, it actually downstream has effects on our patients' health. And, and I'll just add that, you know, I kind of represent the average person, you know, someone who's not totally into environmental um, information and, and so forth. And this fact of the healthcare impact struck me um, uh, foremost uh, as I was, you know, working with Liz to develop a research plan. We don't think of it. I, I think about, as you said, cars, industry, a lot of other things. And we realize that our industry of healthcare is impacting uh, this uh, situation as well. So. Uh, it's, I think a part of it is being aware of it, and most average physicians and so forth are not aware. Yeah, you know, it. I was thinking about it today as I went to work, because, um, you know, knowing that we we're going to have this discussion today, um, and I was, the entrance that I used is near the power plant for the hospital, which is about the same size as the hospital. And we don't yeah. think about that, you know, and you never really think about the power plant of a hospital, unless you're looking for it specifically, it's a the footprint is you know about the same. And and similarly, you know, just thinking about, you know, just at the very basic level, the amount of waste today in and out of the ICU, how many gowns I took on and off, how many masks I threw away, all the stuff that I threw away out of a central venous line kit, and that we do every day, you know, open up all these kits that's plastic and disposables. And we've really, you know, I think become an incredibly wasteful industry um, at, at kind of every level. And, and I'm very thankful that there are, you know, providers out there like you that are, um, you know, making that connection. Um, it makes sense that our healthcare workforce should care and should think about, you know, these issues. Um, I'm not sure we do as much as, you know, people like yourself do. Um, but how do we make it relevant for people that are outside of the healthcare industry, um, be it people that are making, you know, um, these disposables, or sh how should our patients be thinking about, you know, what the impact of, of healthcare's contribution to, uh, you know, this waste is? And I can, um, I'll call on Dr. Wynn first. I'll give you the first shot at this one this time. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. So I, I think it's several fold. You're right. You know, awareness is one thing. And we certainly recognize that patients who come to the hospital, the last thing they're worried about their health and the last thing they want to 
you know, think about is, is the, the hospital being wasteful as they prepare my surgery. So I, we totally understand that. We're being realistic about that. But it also turns out that in the environment affects health uh, in other, uh, other ways besides just smog. Um, and we, we, we work about, we talk about heat and, and heat waves. We talk about the impact of uh, cooling and recovery from surgery and so forth. So it, it really, it really is an eye opener in the way that these things have affected. But our approach to it is that patient care comes first. You know, we don't want to divert everyone's busy um, focus on patient care. But when you, when you do have a moment to step back, there are systems and processes that we can put in place that can, can affect patients. Yeah, I totally second everything Dr. Wynn just said. I think the way his, especially background in behavioral economics has helped us shape our projects and our research has been really to focus on the fact that patient care and the utmost best patient care we can provide is priority number one. But the reason it's so important that the healthcare industry and healthcare providers get involved in this work is to ensure that the solutions that come forth, which because of the way the economy is heading and various regulations coming down at both the state and federal level, where our industry will ultimately be forced to kind of get on board with an increasing sustain, increasingly sustainable practice. But we need to make sure as providers that we align those goals with our clinical practice, that it's not on our shoulders to constantly carry the burden of trying to be documenting everything, doing best patient care, and then on top of it, considering our waste, considering our energy use. Like Dr. Wynn said, we have to design systems that work for us and work for the environment. And if I were a patient, I, I, you know, and I have been, and I would want to know that my doctor isn't being distracted, as Dr. Wynn said, by these these demands. And so, building systems that work for both both goals is so crucial. Um, if you don't mind, I can give some tangible examples of that. One of the things we did when our walkthrough in an initial uh, aspect of our starting our projects was we talked to nurses, and they said, you know what, we open these packages. Uh, that have their devices or, or simple devices even, uh, and they have all of this packaging, you know, like a booklet in every package. And I, we recognize that's probably regulatory and, you know, required. But if they do the same thing over and over again, those those things build up and, and rarely are they needed to be to, to look at. And so, you know, one idea is can we work with regulators to, to say, let's have a QR code, just like now when you go to restaurants and you want to look at the menu, you can do it on your phone and get the information as needed instead of generating the piece of paper and the booklet every single time. You know, so these, these things are if you talk to people who do this every day and you ask them, hey, in your spare moment, think about sustainability, like, oh, here's a great idea. Why do we do this? And then it it requires collaboration with industry and regulatory stuff. But these things can be done, you know, to, to cut waste at, at every level. But that's just a one tangible example that I've, we've thought of and encountered uh, during our investigations. Yeah, and those are important. Um, there, we, I think we ignore a lot of the waste. We, like I gave the example, you know, when you open up a tray to do a central venous line or an LP tray, just thinking of how many things you throw away and how much you use, are there better ways to you know, for for us to to speak to these people making these kits to say, this is wasteful. We don't need all these. Or could there be different ways to, you know, assemble a kit? I know we do it for ease, but then when you're throwing away half the kit, it just seems wasteful. 
Um, to build on that, and this might not be something you've thought of, but you know, especially as we're you know still in this pandemic, um, you know, and and other diseases that we've treated with using plastic gowns, masks, you know, hats, shoe covers. Uh, certainly, early on in COVID, we didn't know how this was transmitted, so we weren't sure what we did or didn't need. But now, with certain things like MRSA, ESBL, you know. Um, these other diseases where we have a really good grasp on transmission yet are still implementing these, you know, these protections that aren't necessary and that lead to significant waste. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think there's more you know, need for better research in this area, better education? How can we impact that, you know, in a fruitful way? I think both of those uh, ideas that you kind of both touched on, education and research, are so crucial and key. Um, it's really hard at one level to change a kind of traditions-long practice. And a lot of those things you're highlighting, you know, yellow gowns as you walk into an MRSA room, have been you know, essentially law for decades, certainly for as long as I've been a clinical resident and even during medical school. So my entire medical career thus far, I have always put on a yellow gown to walk into an MRSA room. And just like you, I have had the same thought, is this really protecting my patient? Similarly with a C. diff, if I, you know, we know that the best way to prevent C. diff is to wash your hands, and yet I gown up every time. And the challenging thing there is that safety is the number one priority for both staff and for patients. And we certainly would never want to compromise that. And so starting to have those kinds of conversations around making more environmentally sustainable choices in the healthcare industry become challenging when you start to even get into the realm of safety. Even if we intellectually know that's not the way diseases is um, transmitted. And the way we've started to tackle that is to try to take on less hot button type projects and build some success in terms of identifying sustainable changes we can make at our hospital and building some momentum and some support among clinical providers so that we can then start to have those slightly harder conversations that challenge the traditional norms, especially if they're not evidence-based. And like you said, that's kind of step one is education. But step two is really doing the implementation research and showing you know, if we don't wear these gowns, we have the ability to track and we can show that our infection rates aren't going up. My assumption, based on all of my knowledge um, in terms of just being a clinical provider, is that they probably wouldn't. Um, but I would never, you know, compromise patient safety uh, for that goal. Um, to add on that, we had a recent conversation with uh, one of the uh, environmental services directors about the use of these gowns and so forth uh, during COVID. And so, of course, everyone reacted and you know put you know everything on. Of course, of course, of course, that was the right thing to do. And then once we, you know, understood better, uh, people were still a little reluctant to, uh, you know, de-escalate a lot of the gowns and, and throw them all into the red bags. And so uh, our hospital produced a bunch more, uh, lots more red bag waste uh, during the COVID era. Again, people understood. But then when you looked at the cost and the waste and we realized that that wasn't, you know, sustainable. So people backed off and their comfort levels were okay with that. And the other big thing was our uh, uh, HVAC system. So we generated room, special rooms with negative flow so that the 
vapors would stay inside the rooms. But we realized that no one else was doing that, that that was not necessary. Um, and so eventually, through a lot of you know checks and so forth, we backed off of that. So a part of it is, uh, as Liz said, you know, breaking tradition or re-examining tradition, and a part of it is sort of making people comfortable because that's all they know, you know. Um, and so through evidence, research, uh, changes in practices, all the safety checks, we can do it. Even the harder things. <laughs> right. Right. It just. It's a lot of conversation and yes. a lot of, yeah, a lot of data to really you know, that that we either have to provide upfront or spend the energy, you know, moving forward to demonstrate that those outcomes, you know, are either unchanged or it's safe practice. Uh, but it's a lot of work to convince, you know, multiple structures uh, of individuals from administrators to healthcare providers um, to, as you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, serve the service industry that are cleaning those rooms and, and, and uh, you know, uh, maintaining those rooms. So to build on that as, as surgeons, um, how have you structured these kind of discussions um, specifically with your surgical colleagues? And what kind of, how have you framed these discussions uh, specifically with your surgical colleagues? Maybe I'll start, Liz. Um, yeah. And I, to me, again, as the older senior surgeon of the group, I feel like, um, you know, everyone is focused on patient care, of course, and safety and so forth. So at the, if we just say, he just do it because it's better for the environment, again, it's just my perspective. I, I don't think that gets enough traction. Uh, for some people, yes, totally, that's the right thing to do. I'm willing to sacrifice, I'm willing to change. But for most people who are busy with physicians, nurses, and so forth, I think there has to be something else in it. it. Again, that's just my personal opinion. And some of it is cost. So if you're an administrator, cost is a big thing. Long-term cost savings would be one. Uh, number two would be um, sort of the uh, environmental impacts in the long term. Again, that, that could persuade uh, people to do it. And, and our approach is, well, we, if we made it easier for you, to make these changes and these choices subconsciously um, and there will be, of course, an environmental impact, would you do it? And most people would do it. You know, they realize that just by convenience, they'll do it and it'll, you know, it'll be the right choice. And so that's where the choice architecture of, that comes from behavior economics comes into play. And so we, we just don't say this is the right thing. You morally have to do it or you're a terrible person. That doesn't work. Or you must do it because I'm demanding you do it. That's not really positive. And so we, we sort of do these really clever things from behavioral enactments to change the choice architecture. And people are actually doing it and they're willing to do it. And I have fun examples of behavioral economics, but I but we can talk about it. But let's listen to Liz and her, her response to you. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've spent the past, I guess, full academic research year trying to convince surgeons to care about uh, climate, climate change, and sustainability. And my pitch is pretty consistently the same. And as Dr. Wynn highlights, you can target different aspects and different benefits of a sustainable approach to healthcare for different groups of people. Like you said, especially for administrators, cost, the bottom line is going to be a big uh, issue. And there's a fair amount of data to suggest that there are ways to align those goals, sustainability and cost savings. Um, but when I talk to surgeons specifically, I've actually found 
it's a little bit more um, easy to make the connection from a healthcare standpoint um, and from a health outcome standpoint than I expected. It's, in my mind, a two-way street. Our clinical practice and especially delivery of surgical care, which is highly wasteful and incredibly energy intensive, has a carbon footprint. We impact the environment. And on the flip side, we're starting to see with more and more data coming out, particularly from OBGYN and cardiovascular literature and on asthma, that how we impact our environment affects our patient's health. And we can't ignore that. And so from that standpoint, we have an actual role in improving the environment in order to improve our own outcomes. And that kind of conversation opens a lot of doors with surgical practitioners because I can tangibly say, hey, look at all this waste we're making in the OR, or turn to the anesthesiologist and say, hey, did you know that your anesthetic gases go right outside into the, into the atmosphere and that they are greenhouse gases? And when you think about that, that's how climate change gets perpetuated from a healthcare standpoint. We're part of the problem. And that really tends to ring a bell and start conversations. Um, often more, more heated and more uh, exciting than I anticipated, um, but it's been a good platform to, to start that kind of conversation. And is, is and it I'll, the one else meant to... Um, oh, sorry, go, go ahead, please. All right, again. And I think surgeons respond to tangible things. Um, so one of the projects that Liz and I are doing is this impact of heat waves on outcomes and specifically surgical outcomes. Our hypothesis is that patients who have surgery, let's say a simple surgery or a complicated surgery, and they have a wound and they're going home to recover, if, if there's a heat wave, um, then that recovery is going to be very difficult for wound uh, healing, just general comfort and recovery and so forth. And then our secondary hypothesis is that disparities, so certain populations, vulnerable populations are more um Worse, worse affected from heat because again they're less likely to have air conditioning or get away from some of the influences of a heat wave um, because they live in urban areas and so forth. So that's like a tangible example that we're trying to do research on and to show that uh, heat waves affects our outcomes. And so I think that's something where surgeons say, "Oh, okay, wow, that's something that we we can understand and to uh, mitigate." heat waves it's purely air conditioning you know so can we set up systems where we can help pay for electrical bills or something that's changeable uh, we can't change disparities we can't change race but we can maybe help with the work with the city and other resources to get some people air conditioning you know or let's offset their electricity bill so they don't they can don't feel bad about turning it on and they have better recovery uh, through the heat wave and their surgery even I'd like to be first on that list, if I can. Yeah. <laughs> I have air conditioning just in one room, and I'm sitting yeah. in it now. Yeah. And we it's don't a big driver it. for getting me to work. Yeah. We're all, as you highlighted, Stephen, in the Boston area, um, and Dr. Wynn brings up heat waves and, and the disparities that can be propagated because of lack of readiness and lack of um, uh, resources to deal with the heat. But even deeper than that, in cities like ours, uh, the risk of heat and heat waves is actually differential based on the historic uh, kind of inequities and, and structural racism that we see built into the architecture of our city. Uh, when we look at the map of Boston, um, historically, you can actually look back and see that uh, traditionally redlined districts are now much more urban, more highly populated and have lower tree density. And a fair amount of climate science uh, research has gone into understanding why trees are so important to cooling off at night. 
And so regions like Chinatown here and Roxbury and Dorchester are much hotter for much more of the day during heat waves than other kind of wealthier regions of the city. For those who aren't from Boston, those are some of the more urban poorer regions. And so the actual risk of heat is higher on compounding the fact that the capacity to deal with that heat is lessened in, in uh, poor communities. So it's a double, a double whammy. And, and we saw the topic the, of heat. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Dr. Nguyen. I was yeah. going to say the top, you know, the topic of heat is also works well because people think of these things as long-term effects, you know, okay. So the environment, if I pollute, no big deal because I won't be alive to, 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 take the consequences, my, maybe my grandchildren. And although that should be enough motivation, often for some people it's too deferred to, to make a tangible difference, especially when budgets are tight and you know there's a lot of conflicting resources. But heat and heat waves, that's sort of like a very tangible now thing. And, and we Bostonians suffered through some of that last two weeks ago, uh, you know, and so people can understand that. And if I think if it's tangible, and, and more immediate, it, it, I think people are going to make changes uh, more readily. And we saw these, you know, these same kind of disparities um, for people, not just here in Boston, but across the country, across the world, that those marginalized populations were more affected by COVID yep. uh, for many, many reasons. Are there certain groups of patients that you find, um, either surgical patients or non-surgical, um, that are more affected by climate change than others. And I know you spoke you know, to the heat waves. I work in pulmonary and critical care now. Um, we actually see you know, our numbers of COPD and asthma um, on the rise during um, these, these heat waves. What have been your experiences, both you know, your own clinical experience, but also what you know about you know, worldwide outcomes for patients that, you know, uh, that are affected by climate change and, and disparity. I can jump in on that one first. Um, this is actually, take a step back, this is how I got passionate about climate change. So it's a question I really care about. Um, I came at climate change as a medical student, uh, starting to realize that within my clinical practice lifetime, climate change is going to drive disparities in health outcomes. And so this question is something I really believe in. Um, and I break it down in a couple of ways. The climate scientists and kind of climate policymakers would call these two buckets um, adaptation and mitigation. Adaptation is the ability to adapt or have the resources to ready yourself for the impacts of climate change. And then mitigation is the ability to mitigate or to diminish the way that we contribute to climate change. And so an adaptation would be you know, building your house on a on uh, stilts if you're on the uh, on the on the coast to ready yourself for sea sea level rise. Whereas mitigation would be trying to put uh, solar panels on your roof to reduce your use of fossil fuels. And, and when we look at kind of human capacity across the country, um, if you come from lower set of resources from a higher risk community, you probably have less ability to do either of those things and it ultimately compounds your health risk is what the data is starting to show. To pull it back to pulmonary, like you were saying, uh, I'm not surprised you're seeing higher, higher levels of COPD and asthma exacerbations. And I'm sure that you're seeing a lot of those patients come from communities of color that are often in areas of heavy industry 
and are often along major highways. So real sources of air pollution, which is a substrate or a side effect of the same processes that cause climate change, fossil fuel burning. And so as we kind of look more and more across both our nation and then globally, you're going to see more and more examples of how people with low resources are essentially experiencing a threat multiplier effect of not being able to limit their carbon emissions and also, you know, being most at risk and not able to adapt. I think, you know, the pulmonary example is spot on. Um, interestingly, I came to, you know, the subject of healthcare research the, through the same way, though not in environmental. So, uh, so I'm an economist uh, as my side job, as it were. And to me, I study the impact of health on wealth and of wealth on health. So people who have bad health just can't generate income and they've got, you know, so they slip down that road and the medical bills, high proportion of uh, causes of bankruptcy. And then it's sort of circular because if you are getting poor, you're getting you know, lower income, losing your jobs because of your health, that impacts the way you can pay for health care and pay for appointments to go to health care and the rides to get you these things and some of the medications that we have. So it's, it's kind of a vicious circle, the relationship between health and wealth. And so here it, with the environment, it's, it's a sort of the same um, risk factor in that the environment and negative things about the environment affect people differently. And that and your ability to recover from that or to mitigate that depends on your wealth. You know, can you get air conditioning? Can you get out of the city? Um, can you um, deal with some of the, uh, the heat issues, you know, and so forth? And, and, and and live in a in population or a location that's better for your health from the environmental issue. So it very much is all very related. And we again and again see that the same people who are negatively affected by weather, by gun violence, by any, you know, all these negative things we have in our society and our culture right now, they're the same groups of people, unfortunately. And so it, it's very additive. It's, it's quite sad, actually. I think Dr. Wynn and I both have focused kind of in those answers also pretty domestically on risk factors that we really um, relate to here in the United States. But I want to call back to you highlighted also, you know, from a global perspective, how does this play a role? And if you back out, and I, I will put a caveat on this, that I am not a global surgery expert, but I have been uh, privileged enough to kind of have some conversations with some people who are really uh, invested in this field. And some of those folks are sit on the Lancet and WHO groups that are trying to push for uh, increasing global surgical infrastructure um, across the world, especially because there are billions of people who simply don't have access to enough uh, surgery or anesthesia care, and it's actually affecting mortality rates in a lot of the developing worlds. And as we look at the opportunity to expand global surgical infrastructure, it's interesting because you know the, a lot of those countries and a lot of those communities are the least culpable, we could say, for climate change. And they are the most in need of increased infrastructure. And with infrastructure, traditionally has come fossil fuels. But we try to reshape this and we're trying to start to have a conversation about how we could maybe flip the, flip the deck, flip the perspective on that and have the developing world actually lead and really invest in sustainable infrastructure, both surgically and 
broad, more broadly in healthcare, so that as we build up the resources in across the world, they actually skip this stage where we are, where we're dependent on fossil fuels and we have to rehab our existing infrastructure. Wouldn't it be great if we all decided we were going to invest and actually build sustainably from the get-go and allow them to be global leaders and potentially even economic leaders in the future? It's going to take a lot of upfront investment and it's going to take a lot of effort from more financially wealthy nations across the world. And I recognize all of the changes that and challenges that come with that. But there is a real opportunity in this moment and if we could seize it. Great. And to, to build on that, and I think, you know, we have listeners that are across the globe um, and many of them are in healthcare. Many of them are very proactive and leaders of change. Uh, you know, what can our listeners do uh, to get involved and to help facilitate this kind of change, you know, at their local level, at, you know, at, at a national or even worldwide level? What are, what are some things that they can do to kind of implement these ideas and to, to help affect these changes in, in their own clinical uh, setting? There are a few organizations, both domestically and globally, that I'm aware of, and I'm sure there's more that I'm not, uh, so certainly not to uh, uh, lay favor anywhere specifically. In the U.S., kind of the biggest ones are uh, the Practice Green Health and Healthcare Without Harm are the two largest organizations in this space. And they're not just focused on surgery. Um, it's a broader healthcare uh, set of groups. Although I believe it's Practice Green Health has a specific initiative called Greening the OR, and they produce really uh, surgery-specific guidelines and that we've actually reviewed pretty extensively in one of our pieces that are strong and, and data-driven in terms of how to start tackling these sorts of problems in your hospital. Where is the place that you can start to make a change? More globally, that becomes a bit challenging. Um, there's a group called Build Health International who has some experience um, building climate-resilient, sustainable hospitals, um, particularly surgical suites. Uh, that are kind of powered by um, uh, green energy, often solar and um, sometimes wind. Um, and so they've been a real leader in that space. But as I said, a little less familiar with the global global work, but truly there is an opportunity um, in, in kind of building up surgical infrastructure globally to be both sustainable and more climate resilient. I'll add that, you know, most organizations, at least smaller hospitals don't have an environmental person environmental leader. You know, there's a facilities, of course, and there's uh, uh, environmental in a sense of, you know, sort of collecting the garbage and the waste and processing and so forth. But some of these forward thinking projects, uh, there's typically not a leadership, but there is leadership in informatics and, and, you know, other areas, quality safety, of course. So we advocate like having somebody be focused on that. Um, and it's hard because we all do other jobs and so forth and so on. And so we also would say, you know, let's just get educated. And if you ask around, you can put together an interested group in your floor, in your ICU, in your ORs, uh, and kind of work on projects and show everybody that hey, there's an interest and there's things that we can do, even if it's a, a relatively small compared to the, the larger scale. But that's a kind of a grounds ground up approach, uh, then hopefully that will garner a lot of attention and people say, yeah, we need to have that as a focus uh, in our organization. You know, somebody's got to do that and proactively, not just sort of passively doing these things and so forth and get ideas and stay up to date. 
So I think we think of education is probably the biggest one. Um, you know, and hopefully your podcast will get people excited and thinking about it. Number two is a lot of research. Right? I think that the research in healthcare impacts and relationships in, in environments, I think is, is not as, as uh, broad as some of the global environmental research. And then thirdly is the implementation. We, we, we think about it. We just don't say you must do this or you're a terrible person. We have to think about it to integrate it into the busy lives and the busy work days of all the people who work in our hospital and our clinics. So there's a lot to do for sure. On the implementation front, just colloquially from our own experience or anecdotally, we've actually seen that it's brought a lot of groups together across the hospital that maybe wouldn't otherwise interact or appreciate each other's work from environmental services and infection control to even, you know, we have OR assistants who are often absolute workhorses of our surgical suite and don't get nearly enough credit for what they do. But everyone has some connection to the climate and to their environment. And so when you start talking about these issues across specialties, you can get nurses, surgeons, anesthesiologists, uh, janitors, OR assistants, everyone in one room aligned on kind of one goal. Um, and one, it's more effective as Dr. Wynn highlights because you need a cross-disciplinary team to actually make change in any hospital. And two, it's actually been a pretty feel, feel good type initiative. Um, so as we gain some smaller wins, we can start tackling bigger sustainability issues. We, you know, we come in and we we're talking about red bag waste and we want to save the environment. But there's actually people who save the environment every day in our operating room. When I finish the case and I walk out and talk to the family members, I walk back in 30 minutes later and the whole thing is clean, you know, and all the trash is taken out. And we forget we I'm certainly guilty of forgetting all those people who work behind the scenes to make the hospital clean and organize and, you know, all those facilities folks who do all that every day. So as Liz pointed out, it was a very pleasant reminder that all, you know, we work as a team in the hospital. Every job is important and everybody is critical. It was a really nice discovery and a reminder for me. Are you starting to see a growing body of evidence of, of the impact of climate change on patient income outcomes? I know, you know, you pick up a journal most of the, you know, what you read is going to be pharmaceutical, surgical procedure. Are you starting to see kind of a, a building body of, of some research and research interest in this area? Definitely. Um, I think it follows two strains. One is the climate and environmental impacts on health. And then two, even sustainability research, you know, really documenting rigorously how you can reduce your carbon emissions and, and the associated cost is actually starting to get published in some uh, smaller journals. From a health outcome standpoint, surgery is behind, to be honest. Uh, we don't have a lot of literature out there about how the environment impacts surgery. And it's such an important question because as Dr. Wynn highlighted, there are ways we can manipulate and, and improve uh, people's environment, you know, artificially to improve their surgical outcomes. And when you get surgery, you're inherently more vulnerable to your environment than you would be without it. But there are leaders in OBGYN, in uh, pulmonary and critical care, um, especially, uh, who have really started to look into the impact of various environmental stressors on outcomes. I'm happy to you know, share some links if, if we're able to at the end of this, um, but some of the kind of big outcomes that jump to mind is that both pollution and heat at the end of pregnancy 
have been linked to preterm birth and low birth weight. And it's actually been shown to be higher among African-American mothers than any other race. So I mean, clearly a disparity there. Heat waves alone across the U.S. are shown to increase the risk of mortality on any given day. That's a heat wave versus a not heat wave day by like about 4%. And anyone who's in medicine knows that a mortality signal with any risk factor is a pretty major finding. And then in your space and in the pulmonary uh, world, the risk of asthma and the association with pollution is just so clear and well-trodden now, especially among kids, uh, that you know there's ample data out there to show how important it is that we reduce kids, especially exposure to pollution, to improve their asthma health. So there's growing literature, and I'm hoping that surgery is going to jump on board and start doing some of their own research and then understanding our role as well. Well, great. Um, any we're, we're running up um, against our time, uh, but I did want to ask you both, give you both an opportunity, uh, if you had any other kind of take-home points that you wanted our listeners to to really kind of you know take home as their you know top two three take home points that they can kind of start to to think about and to use as a you know as a starting point for their action uh, in in climate change and healthcare. I'll start, Liz. Then um, I, I would say, and again, I'll, I'll speak for the senior surgeon, someone who's been in practice for a while, you know, set in their ways, as it were. <laughs> I would say that you know the first foremost thing is that it's it's not a remote, distant issue. It's an issue that you, we really should focus on, um, and it's going to affect you as eventually we're all patients, if not already, um, and you know your loved ones, your family, and your neighbors, and so forth. So I think that that's a part of it. It's something that uh, can be easily dismissed because we're all busy. We've got a lot of stressors in our life, and, and we get that. And sometimes long-term impacts are harder to understand or to appreciate, but we're trying to show you that it's not just a long-term, it's, it's you know, immediate. Um, and I think the second part of it is this uh, sort of tragedy of commons problem where, hey, you know, I'm just this one person and what I do, how can it make a difference and how can it make a negative difference in the environment? And, and, and while that is true, if everyone thought the same way, obviously we are where we are now. And so it doesn't, you don't need to change the world. and, and you know, eliminate pollution. You just do your thing and help whatever you can. Um, and then if everyone sort of did that, even partially, that would make a huge environment because otherwise we never get started because we would want to wait for somebody else to take care of it for us, which may never happen. So um, those are kind of my two uh, learning experiences from doing this. You know, I, I, I realize that it's not just an, a, a theoretical, uh, thing that's left for young people to you know to worry about. It's actually relevant for everyone, both as a person and as a physician. As one of those young people, I think I'm still I think I still qualify as one of the young people, although rapidly aging as residency progresses. Um, I think my two takeaway points are are similar and related. Um, one would be that this, as Dr. Wynn highlights, is not a distant problem. And to connect a lot of the stuff that people are doing in their own personal lives with their healthcare professional lives, because so many of us at home are recycling and turning off our lights and making sure you know our air conditioning is set to uh, 
quiet down when we leave or the heat is, you know, uh, we have our thermostat set, set to save energy. There are ways that you can incorporate that same perspective uh, at work. And I think that that's a really important connection that not everyone makes uh, right off the bat. And then the second component that I would highlight mostly for people in my position who are coming up in the world and is to not really be afraid of your own agency or not, not to underestimate your own agency in this uh, space because people want to do what's right for their patients and they will listen to somebody who's even in residency. And surprisingly, uh, there's fairly good social science literature out there to highlight that healthcare providers all the way from, you know, um, uh, nurses and uh, uh, practice assistants, anyone who's in the clinic setting, all the way up to the attending surgeon at Dr. Wynn's level, those are some of the most trusted voices on climate change, which for better or worse, I, I found surprising, and for better or worse, it's true that it's not the policymakers and it's not the politicians, but us in the healthcare industry who actually have the ability to talk to the average citizen about this issue. So even if you're, you know, you think, hey, I'm just, I'm just a resident, or you know, I just got out of nursing school and I'm just starting out, you now have the agency to have these kinds of conversations and take that really seriously because you've got the power. <laughs> And if they don't believe you, they can just Google it and they'll find on WebMD or, or another source, right? So, well, I wanted to thank you both. This has been a really great conversation on an incredibly important topic. I think, you know, we have a lot to think about. Um, there's a lot that people can do. And it's nice to have, you know, a problem where people can actually make an impact at even the smallest level. Um, we have so many issues that we hear about these days and people feel a little bit powerless. Um, this is something people can really, you know, um, impact and change um, through, you know, just thinking about their practice and thinking about all of the things that you've all, you know, talked about as simple as, you know, lighting to heating to cooling to, you know, supplies and equipment, um, but also thinking about our patient out outcomes and how can we impact those what are the things that impact those patient outcomes and some solutions that are oftentimes quite simple to make that important change. So I'm very appreciative of the work that you do. I'm very appreciative of the time that you've spent with me and our, our listeners today. Uh, we certainly will provide those links uh, to some of the research and to some of the uh, organizations in our show notes. Um, so again, thank you, Dr. Wynn. Thank you, Dr. Yates for your time. Um, and thank you, listeners, for spending time with us today. Um, again, we know there's lots you could be doing, uh, and it's we're very appreciative that you, you take that time to learn about something new today. Please make sure to follow us on Instagram at World Extreme Medicine, um, on Twitter at ExpedMed, and visit our website uh, at worldextrememedicine.com. And if you can, and the world allows us to, uh, we hope to have you in Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, November 13th through 15th for the World Extreme Medicine Conference. Um, if you can't join us live, um, there'll be a virtual option as well. Although just Google Edinburgh, Scotland, and you're going to very much want to be there for sure. Um, especially the two primary things to do are ghost tours and whiskey tastings. And there are ghost tour whiskey tastings as well. So I think that you'd be missing out if you aren't there. So thanks again. And uh, we'll see you next time on the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Bye.